You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm Rick Kleffel. Welcome to Talk of the Bay. We have a special Geek Speak edition of Talk of the Bay today. With, with us in studio, we have Lyle Troxel, Sean Cleveland. Good morning. And we'll be ta- speaking with science fiction author Charlie Strauss. Yo. Uh, here on Talk of the Bay, stay tuned. Talk of the Bay is Supported by John F. Kennedy University School of Holistic Studies in Campbell, offering a master's degree in counseling psychology with a specialization that integrates body, mind, and spirit. Details online at jfku.edu. The views expressed in this program are not necessarily those of KUSP. Charles Strauss. He's the author of Singularity Sky, Accelerando, The Family Trade, The Hidden Family, The Clan Corporate, Halting State, The Atrocity Archives. His newest novel is Saturn's Children. Thank you for joining us, Charlie. Hi, I'm pleased to be here, Rick. Thanks. Charlie, um, at the very beginning of your newest book, you dedicate it to two authors who have a lot to say about automata and robots, and that's Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. Could you tell us a little bit about when you first encountered those authors yourself? Well, you know, Rick, they say the golden age of science fiction is 12 And that's about when I encountered Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov for the first time. They're pretty much unavoidable if you're under 50, under six... Well, sorry, if you're over 30 in science fiction, because while they stopped publishing the 1980s or stopped publishing new material in the 1980s, they dominated the field from about the 1930s onwards. And they had a huge influence on it. They were both trailblazers. Isaac Asimov needs no introduction. He's very, very famous as the inventor of the free laws of robotics and for a whole number of puzzle stories along along the way, whereas Robert Heinlein covered a much wider area of concerns throughout his career. And above all, he's probably best remembered as the author who first brought real storytelling skill into science fiction when it was a young genre in the 1930s and early 40s. Well, one thing that interests me about uh, Robert Heinlein is that there's kind of to me he has there's three different modes of Heinlein. There's his juvies, which for my money are are I think some of his best work. Then he has his kind of his revolutionary science fiction, and this is uh, Starship Troopers, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and then there's the third era of Robert Heinlein when he decides. To, when essentially he started taking Viagra, although there was no Viagra at the time he was taking it. <laughs> Actually, I tend to go a bit more charitably on him than that. He had a major cerebrovascular problem in the late 1960s. In around 1979, he finally had bypass surgery for it. Um, he virtually lost a decade during the 1970s. It was said by some critics, I think fairly, that he couldn't hold a story together at longer than novella length for 10 years. He was actually deeply sick. Wow. Nevertheless, he was doing his best to get to grips with harder topics than he'd been able to deal with before. On the one hand, he 
it's been said with some justification he badly needed an editor from 1965 onwards. He was too big to edit. On the other hand, he was trying to talk tackle harder topics and topics that to be fair the science fiction editors of a day might have had a bit of a difficulty in do in doing from a writer who wasn't already very very famous enough to ignore what the editors were saying um it, one thing uh, about heinlein was that he was a guy who really he scripted the future uh, badly yeah. <laughs> well in, in a sense his predictions didn't come out so true but he was a, a skilled observer, as Cory Doctorow said, of his own culture. So when we read Heinlein's science fiction, we get a really good picture of the society he lived in. I think Heinlein tended to approach things not from the sense of science fiction being a predictive genre, because let's face it, we're not in a predictive business, we're in the right. storytelling business. He'd have been the first to say that. But definitely as a storytelling gig and also trying, in some cases, to tell moral stories. For example, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress was clearly about um, oppression, imperialism, and freedom from central government. That was his revolutionary novel. Um, so I wouldn't be quite that harsh on him predictively. And yes, he does give us a lot of insights into his background culture, which was California 1930s. Charlie, let me um, jump into Asimov then. You mentioned the three laws of robotics, which your characters in um, Saturn's Children mention kind of in passing at the same time with regard, and mostly because, of course, as Asimov even investigated in his work, even giving rules like never hurt a human, always do good, whatever the three rules are, um, you, 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 as an intelligent creature, can get around them any way they need to. Yeah, that's the fourth rule of robotics. Any sufficiently intelligent robot will find a weasel way to get around the first three laws. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, Saturn's Children doesn't really have a lot to say to Asimov and his three laws of robotics. Um, I don't have that much time for Asimov as a writer, actually. He mm -hmm. was very good at science writing, but his, story, his storytelling skills left a bit to be desired. Um, but he did bequeath us a whole way of thinking about robots and about intelligent servant machines who are not human and I think he was very much a prisoner of his time as well and he didn't think them through fully adequately the one thing that the free laws of robotics have nothing to set to tell us about is how a society of robots would rule themselves They're right which is what this which is what your book does exactly um, it's you know the MacGuffin of Saturn's children is pretty simple to sum up a um, couple of hundred years in the future from now, the human species goes extinct. Which sounds bad, but, you know, human civilization just gets on, shrugs, and spreads itself to the stars. It doesn't need us. With the, with the advent of robots that are intelligent. Oh, yeah. Now, you, the, the, way, you, um, the way your lead character model um, reproduces or gets created has to do with a training phase very much like an infant. Can you go into that idea of making intelligence? Yes. Basically, um, Saturn's Children is a bit of a departure for me. One of the assumptions I decided to make in this book is that there's no AI singularity, that actually creating an intelligence from first principles using software is beyond us. About the closest we get to it in this book is the idea that if you analyze how the neural networks of a human brain work, you can run a software emulation of a human brain that's sufficiently detailed, that you switch it on, and after about nine months, it can make loud crying noises and try to eat its own feet. 
<laughs> you then have to train it for 18 years if you want to have a useful robot. And you have to keep on giving it new bodies that match its patterns. Yeah. You're basically exactly. emulating human um, development. Yeah. So software upgrades are very important to robots oh, yeah. in this world. Absolutely. And, you know, I was trying to get my head around aspects of dehumanization and autonomy in this book. Because these robots are in many respects fundamentally human, but they have been created as slaves, basically, and that's an ugly word to use. It's implicit in, in any discussion of AI and robotics is the idea of tireless robot slaves. And that has certain ugly side effects when you get down to it. We're speaking with Charlie Strauss in the studio. We have Lyle Troxell, Sean Cleveland, and Charlie Strauss. If you want to join in the conversation, call us at 1-800-655-5877. Now, inter interplanet travel, very difficult in the future, especially in your version of the future. Um, can you talk a little about uh, what went into that? How did you come up with your, uh, your modes of travel? I did it very simply. I actually looked at what was on the drawing boards and considered to be feasible enough that NASA is throwing money at it. Um, space travel is actually hard. This is one of the things that we hit after the, Apo the Apollo project. Basically, to go faster, you've, to double your speed, you've got to square the amount of energy you put into accelerating your rocket. To actually decelerate at the other end, you've got to, um, you've got to raise to the fourth power the amount of energy you put in. It takes a long time to get anywhere, and distances in the outer solar system are enormous. They're mind-numbingly vast. You have a great description of how, how close Earth is to to the Sun versus Saturn and Jupiter. Can you go through that? that? Oh, yeah. Um, let us suppose that um, the Earth and the Sun are about a foot apart, one foot, 30 centimeters. Jupiter, about five or six feet further away. Saturn, make it 10 feet away from the Earth. Alpha Centauri, a couple of miles down the road. Yeah. <laughs> this the the not, other solar systems are a long ways away. This does not bode well for sending, as you call it, uh, monkeys, canned monkeys into space. Yeah. We human beings have a minor design flaw when it comes to interplanetary colonization. I mean, we can explore space. We can send robot probes out. We can send astronauts scurrying around on exploration missions at some considerable risk to themselves and at great expense with a life support system. But, you know, we're basically fragile. Expose us to a solar flare and we fry. Um, put us in vacuum for five minutes and we die, irreversibly. We really need robots if we want to do the colonization thing because fundamentally there is nowhere in the solar system that we're adapted to live other than a few parts of Earth. Earth's surface area, 70% of it is water. We die there, we drown. Um, of the land area, much of it is uninhabitable. It's either desert or it's ice cap. We're actually only adapted for about 10% of Earth's surface area, and that's one planet in the whole solar system. Mm -hmm. We're highly dependent on our environment. Now, one thing you talk about in this book is it's really about a future society of robots that have human qualities. And I start, you know, um, emulating and emoting with these characters, so much so, just like in any fiction. And I wonder, I mean, I'm not going to be around in, in 50 years, and well, hopefully I will, maybe 60 years. and uh, <laughs> But my children will. And this idea that um, a robotic race, if we do it possibly correctly, how different is that than our own children? What, what, why do we have to think of the human species as the traveler? Well, exactly. That's a uh, core question. To a very large extent, what we are defined as, what makes us different from, our, from animals around us, is our shared culture. 
to the extent that robots are autonomous beings who think and feel much as we do and who share our culture, they are human. Mm-hmm. One thing that you have a lot of fun with in this, as, as a writer are the conventions of storytelling. And when you're dealing with artificial intelligences, you, have, you can really play with those conventions in, in fun ways. And I, I wonder if you care to talk about the, the use of um, recorded lives and soul chips as, as ways for you to tell a story. Oh, it's a great way. It's a great way to hack around with people's personality. You know, imagine if you can um, back up your memories onto a chip at the back of your head, much the same way you back up your computer onto an external hard drive and replay it into one of your clones. Because of course, if you're a robot, why stop at just one? You train one of them up. When you've spent 18 years training them, you just duplicate their brain into a whole bunch of identical bodies, right? which diverge subsequently. Well, the interesting thing, of course, is that since the, the design in your world of a human inte- or a robotic intelligence is the creation of a brain in a growth pattern, you have to have a complete duplication of the hardware, which means even the neural pathways. And so each model can share thoughts and, and ideas, but other models can't, which is a very interesting way of, of making kind of a pseudo semi-species or a semi, you know, family, if you will. Yeah, neural networks are weird. In computer science, we don't really, it is very hard to understand the actual internal workings of a given neural network. We just know how to train them to do something and we can copy them. But, you know, hand editing them is virtually out of a question. Right. And it occurs to me that if you're, if you're, building up a robot by training up a complex neural network there's a lot of pruning going on and patterns lodged in one will just not be transferable to anyone that's remotely different which brings up something interesting as well you have robots with siblings so these are robots who share the same physical attributes and can share each other's memories and experiences and but they're also tied together like a family more like a make of car <laughs> imagine, it, imagine if your car had feelings and you could ex- exchange its memories with other cars around you. You, you address a lot in Saturn, um, Saturn's Children, you address a lot the idea of slavery and freedom and what, what kind of bounds those things are. Because these robots can be put into a mode in which they act, act like a vacuum cleaner. You know, they're told what to do and they yeah, have to do it. a very class society. Yeah. There, there are aristocratic, you know, robots here. So, so the question I have is, at some point these creatures also have this design flaw, um, some of them fail, that they have um, this immense overpowering desire to love humans because they were programmed that way. And that action, when they even kind of run into it, is a lot like slavery. And so are you saying that when you are overridden by your emotions and have to do something, like a parent taking care of a child, that that's a form of loss of individual uh, ability and that's like slavery? When does your autonomy begin and when does it stop? There are certain things that you have no autonomous control over. Um, you can make an effort of will not to go to the bathroom or to give a beating and breathing, but you won't get very far. Yeah. But, and, but we normally think of our, our ability to decide things to do outside of what our body has to do as um, we get to make that decision. And in this, in this society, these robots have this over, overdrive, if you will. But the love aspect m- is mixed to the overdrive, but it's also potentially kind of what we all feel when we feel drawn to do something. I think anyone who's ever been seduced kind of feels that way. They, they kind of lock, you know, lost their ability to decide. So is that, is, and that plays in, the robots actually start looking at that as something that's just like being switched into um, a controlled mode. What do you feel about humans? Do you think humans have that problem? 
to some extent, biology is destiny with this. We do seem to ha be hardwired to fall in love and reproduce. I mean, it's kind of difficult not to if you're part of a successful species. We are all of us descended from about several billion years worth of ancestor organisms, all of which had one thing in common. They reproduced. One thing that, that interested me greatly is, is that this, this notion of free will... Uh, you know, I've always thought of free will discussions about free will as something for philosophy class, not something, not fodder for uh, speculative hard science. And, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the speculation, the hard science of, of free will that's behind free will, because like I say, it's, it's philosophy class, it's religious education. Now we're actually getting pretty damn heavy, and um, I'd rather not go that far of it at present. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, I think we give, we ascribe ourselves more free will than we actually have mm -hmm. um, we are not quite as free we're not quite as self-controlled as we think we are um, one of the aspects of the society in, in your book and we've discussed this a little bit are, are the the classes of robots which one wouldn't necessarily expect to encounter but you have the full-on you know English class society and American class society uh, laid out in your book and I wonder if you talk about why okay. you did that? Um, partly because I wanted to tell a cracking story, but <laughs> also partly because, you know, you're working in a situation where the human species has gone extinct, and it's not sort of a catastrophic extinction due to plague. It's sort of a gradual extinction over a couple of generations, and nobody really noticed until it was too late. You know, they noticed before the humans died out, but weren't in a position to actually reverse it. And... Um, what happens is, it, you can quite easily see, with a society in decline like that, there will be cases where human beings will have robot secretaries, robot assistants, robot PAs, robot butlers, and in many cases they will basically be giving these power of attorney, limited power of attorney, or setting up shell corporations to look after their own interests while they're in hospital or in decline, or to run their assets. And, you know, these human-facing robots, these um, slick, uniformed servants, these are the ones who are in a position of power, and if you have any who are remotely ruthless, they will use what power they can get to get more. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a situation where people are basically property, those people who have even the most tenuous hold on autonomy, on legal, or legal individuality, for example, if they run a shell company with power of attorney, they will be, in some cases, buying up other people and owning them. It's a pretty dark picture. And it's true that you don't... Oh, you need to... Go ahead. Um, we're speaking with Charles Strauss. We've got Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland in the studio, and you can call us at 1-800-655-5877. Lyle. Well, I was going to say um, that it, it, you can really see that in the, the downgrade of man as there's less time for humans to do things like manage their corporations that they'd have take over. But in some respects, even the outer solar system in your world is designed to kind of run by itself in some ways. Even the robots don't have a lot of human interaction, and so they're designed in kind of a different way. One of the things you don't mention, though, is how those humans get their intelligence. Are they raised as well? Um, what, the uh, outer system colonists? Yeah. Um, to some extent, yes, but to some extent they're trained differently. It occurred to me that once you've got sort of humanoid servant robots, these are clearly designed to fit into human society. Right. But there are 
environments where you don't where you may want intelligence and autonomy but you don't want humanity for example there's no point providing a human body to a brain that is basically going to be running a spaceship or a mining machine on pluto mm -hmm. so they're not gov they're not conditioned for the free laws of robotics to obey humans because they're never going to meet a human being mm -hmm. they're going to be living 45 years travel time away from earth uh, we have a call from Miguel in Capitola. He asked, have you noticed patterns in technology, Charles, that will guide us to the future? I've noticed some patterns. Um, the problem is, uh, that's sort of a, a question about 2020 hindsight. Um, I can identify some patterns that clearly are, are going to progress over time, but I can't notice the black swans, the events for which there is absolutely no precedent. For example, you can take a good look around now and say, well, you know, we have personal computers of so much power, we have so much storage capacity available, we've got so much bandwidth, they're growing at such and such a rate, and you can make a good stab at predicting where they'll be in 10 years' time. And you can look at a lot of technologies that are in the lab now, and you can say, well, you know, this stuff is going to take five years to commercialise, and then five years down the line it'll have been used for... And we can make a guess that it'll be used for certain purposes. You, for example, the technology of a clothing printer, something that can kind of make things as you desire. You see that in your yeah. in your world. Or 3D fabricators, or um, virtual reality goggles, or whatever. This stuff is all fairly visibly progressing. If you if you look at mobile phones, for example, you can actually look at what the mobile phone engineering companies are predicting they'll be rolling out in 10 years' time. What, what are they predicting? Um, right now, we're looking at the fourth-generation mobile phone networks and the battle over what protocol they're run on. Um, it currently looks as if a pro protocol called WiMAX is uh, right. winning out. And we can take a fairly good stab at saying that our mobile devices will have about 100 megabits per second of bandwidth in 10 years' time. A key plot point in uh, Halting State. Absolutely. Um, Halting State is a novel that was set about 10 years' time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's about massively multiplayer online games and virtual realities and crime. And um, it opens actually with a police sergeant being called to deal with a bank robbery. Um, a bank has been robbed and she's kind of confused at first when the people telling her about the robbery insist that the robbers were a gang of 50 orcs with a fire-breathing fire dragon for fire support. <laughs> Until she twigs that the robbery took place inside a computer game and her first reaction is, why are you wasting my time? until it's pointed out there were about 30 million euros of real money at stake. Yeah. It's uh, kind of scary, but it seems to be moving that way in some regards. Absolutely. There has already been a bank collapse due to a Ponzi scam in Second Life last year. And, we, and we'll be back with Charles Strauss in a couple of moments. Um, you're listening to Talk of the Bay. You can call us at 1-800-655-5877. We are talking with Charles Strauss about his new books, Saturn's Children and Halting State. We've got uh, Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland with us.
We're here with Talk of the Bay. We've got Charles Strauss in the studio with us with Lyle Troxel and Sean Cleveland. Talk of the Bay is supported by Zachary's Restaurant. Zachary's Restaurant specializes in breakfast and lunch at 819 Pacific Avenue, serving Santa Cruz since 1985. And stay with us for the open road this morning at 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Let's get back to Charlie Strauss. Charlie, um, I'm wondering if you would like to talk about, uh, you know, you've collaborated with... uh, Cory Doctorow, and I, I noticed that Cory Doctorow's last novel was kind of a, a Heinlein juvie remake in many ways, and 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 your new novel is a is a also influenced by Heinlein. What, what do you think Heinlein is so back in the the mix these days? I don't think he's ever really gone away, frankly. Um, there's a large subculture of um, people. The SF writers who keep trying to rewrite Heinlein juveniles because that's the gateway drug that got them into science fiction in the first place. You've got Spider Robinson, you've got John Scalzi, you've got John Varley, to some extent you've got Corey. Um, it's ubiquitous. It's almost a rite of passage for young SF writers these days to go through writing a new Heinlein novel. And it's pretty compelling. I mean, I got sucked in by Heinlein, Harsh Mistress, you know. It's been a great book. It's because of his storytelling technique. Heinlein has this literary toolbox that he bought to science fiction that he has written about, including a set of fairly standard plot structures to hang things on, a set of ways of running characters through the story. And he'd run variations on it. He'd invent a new future and then apply one or two, one or another of these plot skeletons to his future. Yeah, Have Spacesuit Will Travel. Have Spacesuit Will Travel. One of the first ones travel. I read yes, when I was a it's kid. A, it's, a, it's an absolute classic. Even though the science is moldy, he really... His, the, uh, the sense of wonder that he brings to to the adventure is is always still there, and that's a really key point. And well, you know, that brings me to one part part of your book is, is there you really do have a one a great sense of wonder, and there's like inventions a popping on almost every page of this book, in terms of like science fiction concepts. And one of the most interesting to me was was the pinwheel. Could you talk about the pinwheel as a um yes in a nutshell um. We have these incredibly strong fibers these days, fullerenes and carbon fiber cables. And the idea of a space elevator that was proposed by Arthur C. Clarke around 1980 is probably reasonably well known. The idea if you've got a satellite in geosynchronous orbit, you can lower a cable from it to ground level and then send climbing robots up it with cargo. You know, instead of rockets, you just have an elevator. It's compelling, but technically very difficult because you're right at the limits of what physics will allow you to do with material cables and there's all sorts of engineering problems. The engineering problems are just tantalizingly tractable enough that there are various companies trying to spend money on making this work. But there's a number of slightly easier approaches to it. One of which is the idea of a pinwheel. It's basically just a great big spinning cable with a mass at one end. And, you know, the other end, you clamp it onto a payload cylinder, which you've boosted up to it with a jet airliner or with a rocket, and you fling it off like a catapult. Well, this is really fun. (laughs) And I wonder if you just talk about, as a science fiction writer, you get to really play with these kind of fun ideas. And could you talk about that as a means of keeping the reader engaged in your story? Well... Yeah, it is useful. It gives you a chance to sort of depict a somewhat broader universe and use various different sorts of tools. Make it, give it a, how to put it, 
in the real world, if you want to tell a story in which your protagonist travels from one side of a world to the other, you've got various transportation technologies they can use. You know, they can drive, they can get an, get on an airliner, they can take passage on a ship, they can use a hovercraft, they can even walk. But, and, you know, these are all accepted means of transport that coexist. And I think if we do get to the stage where we have expanded into the solar system for real, if there are sort of actual mining and industrial enterprises going on out there, it's going to be messy. It's going to be like the Earth. There's not going to be one form of transport that's dominant. Mm -hmm. There are going to be different niche methods in use. You mentioned solar sails quite a bit. Yeah. Um, solar sails are really useful. If, if you can get them to work, and there's every indication they will work, they're used for stabilization on some communication satellites already. NASA is trying to put a prototype actual solar sail that will go somewhere into orbit this year. If you can get a solar sail to work, um, it gives you a limitless supply of momentum in one direction, out from the sun. But the really neat trick is because you're orbiting the sun, you can also decelerate with a solar sail. You can use it to tack, much like mm -hmm. tacking against the wind on a sailboat. So you can actually use it for moving around the solar system without having to cart lots and lots of fuel around, which is the killer for rocketry. Sure. Now, the inner interstellar um, ships that you talk about in your... Can you describe how the fuel system works for that? It's a massive amount of water. Oh, yeah. A really massive amount of water and power beamed from transmitter stations in the solar system. There's no easy way to get around interstellar travel. It's going to be very, very slow, very expensive, and very difficult and dangerous. What about nuclear detonations as a... You, ha you want to trust somebody with that many hydrogen bombs? <laughs> no. <laughs> Then again, I don't want to spend 40 years in a can. Um, actually, in Saturn's children, the sort of time taken for interstellar travel is more like 700 years. Yeah, yeah. But they've got and slow that's time. Optimistic. Can, you, can you describe slow time? Well, you know, if you have a robot, if you've got a brain that runs on a computer processor, you can underclock it. You don't just overclock it and run faster, you underclock it and run slower. And that's true. It's not going to be terribly pleasant. You know, you're going to experience much higher energy light from everything around you. It's going to feel as if somebody's turned the gravity up. Um, all fluids are going to run around you much faster. They're going to be less viscous. Um, lubricating oil is going to sort of act like water. But it's a good way to pass the time. Because hey, robots get bored. Well, the robots in Saturn's children are about as human as any humans are, and yep, they get bored too. And you know, if it takes you five years to get to Pluto on a fast ship, you really don't want to spend that running in real time. Yeah. Now, um, you. what about a robot just shutting down? Why not they just do that? Fear. For fear the same of dying. For the same reason we don't like undergoing general anesthesia in hospital. Anything yeah. could happen to you while you're under, and you'd never know about it. Now, of course, if you're in slow time, you're not going to know much about it either. Um, scant consolation. Yeah. Although the aristocrats, they travel in real time because they're traveling first class, and they wouldn't waste that. I thought that was interesting. You know, the, all, all of that money, all of their servants... You know, well, they want to be pampered. We got to see that a bit in the real world, actually, in the uh, era of uh, ocean liners. Back before the steam engine came along and revolutionized everything in the 1830s to 1840s, a transatlantic crossing used to take anything up to three months. Mm -hmm. um, the, the absolute record for a sailing ship was about ten days, but more often than not it would sort of stay becalmed off the coast of one continent or the other for two months you know, going maybe 100 miles in that time, and then suddenly catch a breeze and move a 1,000 miles in a week. 
But it wasn't very luxurious. It was not luxurious at all. If you had enough money, you could rent a comfortable amount of space, you'd bring your servants around to sleep steerage. But most people crossed the Atlantic, even in the days of the great liners, in steerage. Um, you know, in bunks five, five, stacked five high and deep with barely enough room to move around. Yep. Charlie, you, not that this is addressed in your book, but I would like to get your opinion on augmenting the human body and in adding machines and things. I mean, we're doing LASIK surgery. What do, you, what do you feel about other technologies that might interface with us? I'm all in favor with it myself, frankly. Um, we are heading in the direction of interfacing technologies with our bodies fairly clearly. There's recent work, for example, on implantable bionic retinas for people with macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing ears for quite a while. We've been doing ears for quite a while. We've got implantable um, left ventricular assist devices for your heart. It, you know, not a full-on bionic heart, but a sort of turbocharger for your heart if you've got a failing heart and you're waiting for a transplant organ to show up. Um, on the other hand, these, mechanical, these are mechanical implants. They don't play well with meat. Right. And we're made out of meat. Um, there's a lot of promise coming out of stem cells, and in particular the idea of sort of using inkjet printers to print cells in solution onto a sort of gelatin substrate or similar to build up an organ. Um, they're talking about actually having implantable artificial hearts made from human stem cells from your own tissue within about 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. What about, I mean, everybody's walking around with Bluetooth now with the California law where you have to have a uh, hands-free device for your cell phone. Everyone's got this little thing in their ear. It seems to me that an I- implant of that would be a lot less, um, I mean, you wouldn't lose it. Now, the flip side of that, and there is a downside to most of these technologies, um, security. There's a British city, I forget which one it is, but there's been a bit of a stink recently because it turned out that researchers from one university were tracking the population by monitoring their Bluetooth devices as they moved around town. Quite easy to do. They all have an ID, yeah. Exactly. Um, there's a balance that has to be struck between privacy and convenience mm-hmm. and the public interest. And it's also whose convenience. Is it your convenience as the user or is it some faceless corporation or the government's convenience? Um, I like to think I don't exist for the government's convenience. Yeah. I, and without tracking, I, one thing that always kind of gets me is that 20 years ago, the idea of anything implanted in the body was kind of disgusting. But now as people have their iPods and their cell phones and they seem to always have a piece of electronics, it's so personal it's almost like a part of them. They feel kind of naked without it, kind of like glasses become when you wear glasses, that as you add more of those things to be a basic part of what you are, it seems to me that the skin um, being the the barrier will start dissolving. Not physically, but metaphorically, yes. Where do you begin and where do you end? This is a really interesting question. Um, what are the contents of your iPod as opposed to your friend's iPod? You know, mm. what happens if you swap iPods for a day? Have you ever tried that? Or your cell phone, yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> I'm sure anybody who got mine would be really annoyed. And, you know, those devices are actually part of your personality. Charlie, what are you working on right now? Um, right now I'm working on a novella that's going to come out in a short story collection next year. And then I've got another novel to write in the Merchant Princes series, which is sort of this quasi-fantasy series I'm writing as well. The novella's topic? Sorry. Um, the novella's topic? Well, I flipped a dice because, you know, I needed to do a novella, and when I started, um, I had no idea what to write. So I thought, hang on, what are the classic topics of SF, the classic meat and drink topics that I've never actually done? Aliens? Mm, could do, but I have difficulty believing in aliens. Okay, time police? Aha, the Time Patrol. When did I last read a good Time Patrol yarn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did a Time Patrol yarn. 
Oh, fun. It's always fun to think about the paradox issues. Oh, yeah. It starts with a guy sort of sneaking up behind his grandfather with a knife. That's not because, a good combination. <laughs> because that's sort of the... That's sort of the thing you've got to do to be recruited by the Time Patrol. They're not nice people. <laughs> uh, we, you can call us at 1-800-655-5877. We've got Charles Strauss in the studio with us and Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland. We have a question from the Internet. This is from Michael Keeler, um, Kohler. Uh, first, he would like to thank Mr. Strauss for writing some of the most entertaining and thought-provoking fiction of the last 20 years. And his question is, it struck me that as I, as I was reading the Jennifer Morgue that these characters and the wonderful take on the themes of Scott Adams, Ian Fleming, and H.P. Lovecraft could serve as a basis for the best TV show of all time. Has anyone from the BBC been at your doorbell yet? And maybe talk about those books and the concept behind them. Not the BBC, but I have had a few inquiries about film and TV rights, um, at to which the words I've been trained to utter are, that's nice, talk to my agent. <laughs> And Nothing has come of it yet. Okay, these novels are just a bunch of fun. It started out, I've got a sort of a, I've always wanted to write classic Cold War spy thrillers, but, you know, the Cold War ended before I was able to sell any novels, and I'm kind of bitter about that, although that <laughs> nice Mr. Putin is doing his best to let me write Cold War thrillers again. <laughs> but, you know, between Mr. Putin showing up and the Berlin Wall collapsing, I thought, you know, I want to figure out some way of doing a, something with the feel of a Cold War spy film, a sort of numinous sense of dread, of the threat of nuclear annihilation. And yeah, that's a great feeling, Charlie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey. H.P. Lovecraft, you know, Cthulhu is going to come and eat your brain. There's nothing and good about there's Lovecraft. N- there's nothing good about it. It's got exactly the same sense of dread as the horror yeah. of nuclear <laughs> annihilation. So, I have this universe in which magic is a branch of applied mathematics. If you solve certain theorems, um, there's a platonic realm of mathematics and there are many, many universes out there and there are creatures in some of those universes that will hear. And you know, computers are machines for solving theorems really, really fast. And so it follows that, you know, um, magic is a book. Computer science blends with magic. Our hero, Bob, is basically a specialist in applied computational demonology. Nice. (laughs) He was drafted by a shadowy British secret agency called The Laundry after, well, he nearly landscaped a small British city while working on his PhD in computer graphics. And they made him a job offer he wasn't allowed to refuse. And The Laundry is basically that branch of a British civil service that's tasked with defending us from the scum of the multiverse. You know what I what I love about this book is that um, there's always been this pattern of magic following the very um, abstract and creative arts. For example, calligraphy and bookmaking. When it was really at its heyday, you had monks that did this amazing work, and the books came out, and they were the the mystic qualities about them became the the book is the thing that a magician has because it had so much depth and so much time spent on it. And you can really see that in the computer age that the mystics would the mystic qualities would follow around the people that are thinking a lot with their brains and doing very detailed, complicated things. So I love that connection um, that you put in this book. Um, In the uh, book, of course, we should probably mention. Yeah, it's, well, the Atrocity Archives. You know, your lead character, uh, his name is Bob Howard, which leads me to, uh, is that Robert E. Howard? Well, you know, mm-hmm. true names have power. Yeah. He, this is something that I wanted to ask you about. You really like the shout-out in your, in your books. Afraid so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weakness of mine. <laughs> now, I have to ask, there's a character in here who's mentioned vaguely, Yelena. Is that a shout-out? Um, no, it isn't. Oh, okay. Because there's a publicist I know. 
No, oh, no. no. Okay. I would not dare put anyone from any of my publishers in any of my novels. <laughs> <laughs> More than my job's worth. I guess since we're talking about publishers, it's a good time to mention that Talk of the Bay is supported by Gateway's Books and Gifts on Soquel Avenue in Santa Cruz. Jay-Z Knight discusses Mind as Matter, Understanding New Realities of the Future Now, August 2nd at 7 p.m. at First Congregational Church. Tickets are available at Gateway's Books and Gifts. Um, one of the things that I liked in your book was the way you turn everything upside down by virtue of having these um, robot, we'll call them robots, um, uh, uh, characters. And, and one of the things you turn right upside down in the beginning is the norms of what a kind of human body to expect. Could you ex talk about that and why you did it? Um, yeah, actually, because uh, as one of the interesting things about history is it gives us some interesting lessons about the present and the future. And we tend to take our archetypes of beauty as, as if they're sort of timeless constants, but they're not really. Um, Marilyn Monroe, for example, would be classified as just far too overweight and fat to be a star now, or a model. And if you go back even further, the ideal of feminine beauty was um, somewhat distinctly pudgy. The romance uh, painters. Romanesque. Yeah. Uh, exactly, Romanesque. Now, um, in Saturn's Children, um, our heroine Freya, she's one of a line of, well, to put it bluntly, sex robots. And Freya has a slight problem in that she came off a production line the year after the human species went extinct. So, you know, she's sort of obsolete at birth. And to make matters worse, in the 200 years that she's been alive, um, the archetype of beauty has drifted, and once it's cut free of actual human anatomy and physiology, it's drifted quite far. Um, indeed, what is considered sexy and appealing and high class is your anime chibi dwarf. You know, big head, <laughs> luminous eyes, the whole works. And Freya is just too big, and her eyes are small and close set, and she's actually an ogre. Right, they, everyone claims that, I mean, she doesn't have a purpose in a lot of sense, too. You have a, a, a main character whose real goal is to interact with humans, and humans are gone. So part of the problem for her as a, um, as a protagonist is finding a reason. Actually, um, to some extent, there's a judo play in here because she has every bit as much a purpose as we do. I mean, human beings are born without a purpose yeah. and have to find it as we go along. And unlike many of the robots in this world, Freya is in a human position. And you also have some really interesting observations uh, of humanity from, from the point of view of machines as being comprised of this very difficult to program material and, and as a technical challenge, in, in other words, a computing technical challenge. Could you talk about oh, yeah. that? I mean, human beings actually scare the robots. Um, confession, not only are humans extinct, but they accidentally boiled the biosphere. You know. They had had remedial work on global warming going on, but once there were no more humans, they, you know, that budget cuts, cuts in. And they didn't notice until they got the Gulf of Mexico to a rolling boil. So not only are there no humans, there's sort of no animal life left. And um, from a point of view of an intelligently designed organism, this natural, goopy, evolved, self-replicating stuff is really, really weird. Right, the whole idea that one of them, or two of them, can actually reproduce is a creepy thing for the robots. Yeah, I mean, it's perverse. They don't even need a factory. 
<laughs> and they, they call them replicators. Oh, yeah. And there's actually, goo. There's actually a whole uh, the whole belief structure. There's a couple different belief structures on how humans got to where, where they were. The idea that they actually built themselves, they're not really sure. Yeah. They don't really believe in evolution. Not all of them do. Yeah. There's a stage debate in the stateroom of an interplanetary line about a couple of Aristos, and it's the intelligent design versus evolution debate. But from a species um, that was designed. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the species who are designed, their proponents, they've got the blueprints, they've got the purchase orders. Whereas these guys who believe in evolution, they've just got these dusty tracks written by these sort of legendary saints like Darwin and Dawkins, who nobody's ever met and who died a long time ago, and make all these weird dogmatic assertions that sound pretty implausible. Wh which you don't even see because, of course, there's no life on Earth to actually watch this exactly. happen. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the intelligent designers win because they're rational. There's this whole idea also that there's this immense amount of power with the human race. If you had a human again in this society, they would be completely dominant because any all the robots would obey them. They're the robots gods. And yet there isn't a human. There's actually not even DNA of them because, of course, the, the Earth has been boiled. So there's a looking for human. Uh, qualities in, in, in this book and um, I think it's fascinating that that is becomes this this battle to just find their creators kind of like how a lot of humans spend a lot of time figuring out God yep we come off a production line without any actual purpose and spend most of the rest of our lives looking for it as a, a science fiction writer you have a lot of fun with um, doing uh, you're one of the what I would call the neologic poets uh, making up words at a fairly yeah. fast and furious rate, and you immerse us in this language, much of which it takes us, a, you know, a few repetitions to to get to know and to suss out. Could you talk about how you plot that strategically as a writer? Um, by the seat of my pants, giggling maniacally, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can come fast too. A couple of you know, a page sometimes. It's so. funny as I finish this book, I don't recall new words. Appearing. I'm oh, sure there, there are tons, tons of them, but there are tons. you get so used to them pretty quickly. Well, have you, you coined any? And is any of your have any of your words hit the uh, mainstream? I don't believe so, but I think the Oxford English Dictionary has me down as one of the cited original in print sources for the uh, verb to slash dot. To slash dot. Not because I was the first person to use it, but because I was the first person to use it in something published on paper with an ISBN. It's funny how the uh, how encyclopedias like that kind of dictionaries like that kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's that's a good claim to fame. Um, I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit um, as we wrap up here about some of the the themes in your work of um, this this idea of free will versus um, uh, intelligent design and programmed behavior. Do you yourself, have you yourself uh, programmed anything and never thought about, well, maybe this might have free will? Or Have you ever gone and driven a couple of hundred miles and gotten to your destination and not remembered anything about the journey you've just been on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. There you go. That is a fairly common example of sort of unconscious autonomous behavior by humans in which, you know, you're there, but there's nobody home. You're not actually remembering it. You're not making any new decisions about what you're doing. You're just on autopilot. And we spend a surprising amount of our time in that state. Well, we almost never think about walking. Our actually ability to stand and balance, none of that is conscious. And as we get more complicated as a creature, like driving vehicles all the time, that same type of status starts going into other things. And uh, Sean, you type at an amazing speed, right? Are you like that with a keyboard? Do you, do you even think about what your hands are doing? No. No, I'm thinking about the sentence ahead. 
of where I need to be. I'm wondering how how mm-hmm. complex a task a human can do in that kind of autonomous way. How, how Where's our limit? I don't know where our limit is. Actually, I'm not the science fiction author you want to be asking this about. There's a guy called Peter Watts who's very, very cutting edge. He's Canadian. He was on the Hugo shortlist last year with a novel called Blind Sight. And... Um, he had this sort of entire genetically engineered subspecies of humans who are not actually conscious, because consciousness slows you up. There's a current cognitive science theory of consciousness, which is that it's actually an internal narrative that we prepare to explain where we've been after we've done stuff. So we don't get <laughs> and confused it, yeah. and lost. <laughs> and it sort of follows uh, follows actual reality around us by between half a second and three seconds. There's actually tests to show that there's a lot of science behind that, where when you make a decision, actually, your brain, by the time you've conscious that you made a decision, you've already made the decision, and that we are really lagging behind our decision-making process. Yeah. Um, sorry. Oh. In a couple of minutes, we'll have the film review with Dennis Morton. We'll review Tell No One and Bring Busting Down the Door. That will be the Film Gang review coming up at 10.55. And we're speaking with Charles Strauss here today. His newest novel is Saturn's Children. We've had Lyle Troxell and Sean Cleveland with us. Thank you for joining us, Charles. Um, could you tell us uh, when, when should we look for your next book and where will you be tonight? My next novel is going to be called The Revolution Business. It's on an ongoing series from two of the Merchant Prince's books, and it's coming out in April next year. As for where I'm going to be tonight, I'm going to be doing a reading and signing at Borders on Post Street in San Francisco at 7 p.m., so come along. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us, Charles Strauss, on Talk of the Bay today. Um, coming up next is the... Uh, film review with the film gang. Dennis Morton will be talking about Tell No One and Busting Down the Door. And join us next, this Saturday. For David Weber on Geek Speak at 10 o'clock. Um, we're going to be talking about his newest book. And you'll be there, Rick, and Sean and I will be there as well. There'll be another science fiction. Great science fiction modern writer. <laughs> Saturday on Geek Speak. Charlie, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege. It's been great. Thanks, Charles. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.